The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open up the scriptures together to the book of Colossians. And so let me invite you there to uh, open with me to Colossians in chapter 3. If you need a Bible, grab one from the rack in front of you and open to page 984 if you've got a blue Bible or whichever Bible you have. We're at Colossians 3 at verse 5. I looked back and saw that we began in the book of Colossians round about in January, and you can see that we're on our 21st in the series Christ Preeminent, this book of Colossians. And what I want you to remember by way of a summary of where we've been as we approach then uh, chapter 3 is that you can divide the book of Colossians in two, chapters 1 and 2, and then chapters 3 and 4, where the first half is focused on Christian teaching, and the second half is focused on Christian living, where Paul intends that the true doctrine he teaches in chapters 1 and 2 will appropriately inform the Christian life that you're set out to live in chapters 3 and 4. So it's a a wonderful companion of true Christian teaching and true Christian living. And what is at the very center of this book and what is at the very center, really, of all of the Christian life is this reality. That the Christian believer, to be a Christian is to be someone who is united to Jesus Christ. United to Jesus Christ. That language is very apparent as Paul makes a transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Look back and remember chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, you died with Christ. That as a Christian, you died with Christ. If with Christ you died, he says. Then he also goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. So is there is this union, communion, participatory language of the things that are true of Jesus are true of you in Him. He died, you died in Him. He rose, you rose in Him. And since that is true, since you have passed from death to life, moving on into chapter 3, Paul is going to say, here then is what the Christian life looks like. Here's what it looks like to be united to a resurrected Christ, to live in union with the resurrected Jesus, to go about your life as a Christian believer, as a new person, no longer as a slave to sin, but in union with Christ who is your life. That brings us to our text this morning, where in chapter 3, 5 to 11, Paul is going to address this issue. And I'm just going to tell you that this is a sermon that nobody wants to hear and everyone needs to hear. So, full disclosure to that point. Nobody delights to sit under these topics, but it becomes necessary for the growing Christian to do so because today the Apostle Paul is saying, since you are in union with the resurrected Christ, since you have died, and since you now live in Him... What are you going to do about your remaining sin and corruption? What are you going to do about the sin problem in your life? That's what this section is about. So, only once we understand this can we go on to, here's how we grow as a Christian, which is what we're going to see in subsequent texts coming up, Lord willing. But before we get to how we grow as a Christian... Paul wants us first to address how we deal with our sin problem. He refers to it in verse 5 as what is earthly in you. Or another way of saying, what is still of the flesh. 
what has not yet been transformed by the resurrected Christ and still earthly. Your sin, your remaining corruption, that even though you are in spiritual union with Christ, even though your soul is redeemed, your flesh, your body bears the weight of the curse and continues to struggle with sin. Here in this passage, Paul is going to tell us how we should deal with our remaining corruption and deal with our sin. So I want to give you a very brief outline, just two points, and then we'll see these things in the text. Paul says we should deal with our sin in two ways. And the first is in verses 5 to 7, and it is by execution. Execution. And then, secondly, we deal with our sin in verses 8 through 11 by changing clothes. We deal with our sin, Paul says, by execution and by changing our clothes. Again, the sermon no one delights to sit under, but everyone needs to hear. So let's pray and ask God's help as we sit under the authority of the Word today. Gracious God, we bow now in Your presence, thankful that You have called us together, thankful to be a part of a worshiping community to exalt Your Son, our Savior. And so we pray now that You would, as You have promised, Send your Holy Spirit upon us to unite us together under the authority of your word that that which we hear read and proclaimed would be received by faith, believed and obeyed in all of our hearts. Lord Jesus, give us grace today as we hear this word and seek to obey it in the power of your spirit, we ask. In your resurrection name, we ask it. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, Colossians chapter 3 at verse 5 through verse 11. This is the Word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May you write its truth in our hearts today and always. Uh, let, me, let me begin by... Uh, hopefully saying something that you already agree with or perhaps disillusioning you if you don't already know it. You and I, we have a sin problem. Every single one of us. You have a sin problem. We know it. Paul illustrates this uh, not only here in Colossians, but one of my... favorite ways of reminding ourselves about this reality of our continuing struggle with sin is that Paul uses this illustration in in Romans chapter 7 when he speaks of himself 
when he says, there are things that I wish I did and I don't do them. And there are things that I wish I didn't do and I do them so easily. I wish I didn't do certain things and I do them so easily. I wish I did certain things and I can't bring myself to do them. And in frustration at the end of Romans 7, he says, wretched man that I am, which is his way of acknowledging that he has a sin problem. You and I have a sin problem. We can identify with this. We have a sin problem. The question is, what are you doing about it? So we disillusion ourselves to the, the thought that we don't have a sin problem by acknowledging that we do. One of the things that it means to be a Christian is to disavow ourselves of the notion that we're perfect. We know that we're not. We need a Savior. We confess our sins. But having confessed our sins, does that mean that the fight is over and there's nothing left to do? What is required of us in the Christian life to go on wrestling with our sin? What must we do about our sin problem? And what we cannot do is we cannot make excuses for ourselves. We cannot attempt to explain it away or generationally justify it in such a way that my former generation struggled with this, and so of course I will too. We can't coddle our sin. We can't deny the problem. We can't draw attention elsewhere to say, yeah, I struggle with that, but look at all these great things I do. We can't do that. It's not an option for the sincere Christian believer to attempt to brush their sin problem under the rug. Paul goes right to the heart of the issue of what should we do with our sin problem, again, using these two pictures, first of execution and then of changing clothes. So, first of all, dealing with sin is like an execution. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Dealing with sin is like an execution. Why such graphic language? It's very graphic. We acknowledge that. It's graphic because in addition to acknowledging that we have a sin problem, it requires an additional humility to admit that we love our sin actually. We have a sin problem. We're willing to acknowledge that it's a problem. We also love it. We hate that we love our sin, but we love it still. Sin is easy and convenient. Sin, if you like, fits us like a comfortable old pair of slippers. It just fits. It just works. It is properly oriented to our fallen flesh. And so we love our sin. It fits our flesh so well. But Paul says, you are no longer dead in sin if you're a Christian. You are raised to new life in Christ. And the corruption that remains in you, the sin that you struggle with, needs to be killed, not coddled. It needs to be put to death. That language there in verse 5, put to death, is the Greek word necro, which is where we get the word necrosis, the death of body tissue. And it's what the word mortification means. Mortification means putting to death your sin. So another thing to disavow us of is the notion that the Christian life is all sunshine, roses, and easy treading on smooth pathways. Friends, if you've been convinced of that, let me tell you, the Christian faith and the Christian life is a fight. It's a war. 
It's a struggle. And that's very clear from the language that Paul is using here. It's also clear in the words of the famous 17th century English Puritan John Owen, who among many things he is known for this very famous, famous phrase on the mortification of sin. He said this, and let it stick in your memory, Christian believer, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. You must be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's ruthless language. It's not pleasant. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if the ideal Christian life was such that uh, we just simply walk along and our sin issues gently leave us and gently float away like uh, rustling autumn leaves blowing away in the breeze, and they just go away from us. But that's not the picture. Paul says, take out the executioner's sword and kill. Kill your sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And why does it require such hostile action? Why such a violent picture? Because you and I know, you and I know what it is like to come under the conviction of the Word of God. You know what it's like to have uh, conviction settle on us, to have our conscience sting us with the recognition of our sin, and we say to ourselves, I shouldn't do that, or I should stop this. And we know that we should act, and we know that we should do something. We've got to stop it, and we repent, and we cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. But even in the midst of our crying out to God for mercy and grace and forgiveness and repentance, our flesh cries out, let me live. The sin in you says, let me stay. Don't put me away. Don't put me to death. Manage me. Manage me. Modify your behavior, but keep loving me on the inside. Anger, unforgiveness, lust, resentment, adultery, say, don't turn from me. Stay with me. We bargain. We bargain with ourselves and we say, okay, how about this? Just turn over a new leaf. And your sin says, let me stay with you. You turn over a new leaf externally, change this or change this on the outside, but keep loving me deep down in your hearts. After all, look at that person over there. Now that's a sinner, and you're not like them, so you're off the hook. You just manage. There's somebody who needs to take drastic action, but you, you're fine. Paul says, that's not, that's not the Christian life. So, he doesn't leave it in this abstraction, does it? He gets very specific again in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, giving the list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He gets specific, and he's going to do this twice in this section of verses, two lists of vices. There's another version, uh, section in verse 8. We'll come to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice in this first list here how what Paul does is that he begins on the outside, and then he begins to move inwardly as it were, peeling back layers, moving deeper and deeper to the heart of our issues with sin. These outward sin expressions are related to inward sin issues, and they manifest deeply inwardly. First, he says, sexual immorality. This word here covers all forms of sexual deviance from prostitution to both homosexual and heterosexual sexual deviance. Nothing is exempt. 
The Bible tells us that the appropriate expression of all human sexuality is in the context of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman without exception. Everything else is sexual immorality. And then he starts peeling back the layers, doesn't he? What's behind all of this and other external issues, what lays behind these issues down deeper and deeper into the motives of our hearts is that we understand that sin is not just a behavior issue. It's not just external. It comes at the very core of who we are in our humanity, warping and distorting us and biasing against the Lord and His law. So he says, behind sexual immorality there is impurity, unclean patterns of thinking and speaking, desensitizing us to what is unclean. Deeper still, there is passion, and by that he means inflamed and inordinate emotions that have been allowed to burst forth from their banks, as it were, never called into account, living by passion rather than by control, pathos rather than by control. Along with that, there's evil desires, longing for that which God has forbidden our flesh craves at and desires that which is evil. And behind all of that is covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. Covetousness there has to do with the, the, the orientation of the heart and the inner self away from what God calls us to by way of obedience and towards what God has forbidden where we have as a goal unrighteousness and sin and we are satisfied and pleased and seek out and delight these things because we've convinced ourselves that this will make me happy, this will satisfy me, this will give me a true sense of my identity and it becomes my idol and I worship it rather than God. That's what Paul says is happening in us. And slowly by degree and by degree, sin becomes idolatry for us and we experience a devotion to it that only God rightly deserves. Now notice that as Paul moves inward, as he moves inward toward the heart and its motivations, he is reminding us of what Jesus told us previously in Matthew 23 when it's easy to simply only clean up the outside. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of that very thing. He says, outwardly you look clean, but inwardly you rot away. Dealing with sin is not just behavior modification externally. It requires mortification, putting sin and its very motivations to death. So let me use one additional very graphic picture because Paul is concerned not just with your resolve to mortify sin, the desire to do so, but your actual doing it. The, the verb form there in verse 5 is an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Put it to death. He says, in other words, lay your hand upon sin's throat and don't take it off until it's dead. Kill it. It's that serious. So here's motivation for us in this execution, this very graphic uh, picture here. Some motivation for this, first of all, comes in verse 6 when he tells us that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath there is a reference to his judgment against unforgiven sin, which is a motivation to us as Christian believers uh, when we think to ourselves, do we really need to take sin seriously? And the answer is yes. 
because God intends to pour out his just wrath upon unforgiven sin at the last day. We must learn to view sin as God sees it. A violation of his holiness, a violation of his law. We must see it as heinous and learn to hate it. Dear Christian believer, if you call yourself a Christian believer, the Son of God has shed his blood for your sin. That means your sin is not a trite matter. It's very serious. My sin is what required Jesus to shed his blood. A price of infinite worth was paid to cover the debt of my infinite sin. Christian believer, learn to hate your sin. And you will be motivated to kill it as you learn to hate it. But another motivation is there in verse 7. We should put these things to death. What is earthly in us? Because Paul reminds us in verse 7, in these, the these there's the reference to that list, you too once walked. Notice the tense, right? You once walked when you were living in them. Because remember, Christian believer, you have passed from death to life. You're not dead in sin anymore. You're not dead in sin and trespass. You're not a slave to your sin anymore. In Jesus Christ, the power of sin has been broken. The presence of sin remains in you. And you no longer live in sin, though, because you are alive in Christ. The presence of sin remains, but the power of sin has been broken. And so what that means by way of distinguishing here is that a Christian believer is someone who falls into and struggles with sin, but they don't live in it. The Christian believer falls into sin and struggles with sin, but they don't delight to make it their way of life. You understand the difference? Because we repent of it. We turn from it. We are no longer a slave to it. Hear me very, very clearly. Especially those of you who are inclined to be discouraged about your struggle with sin. You don't have to bow the knee to sin. You don't have to sin. You can kill it. You can. You can do so. You don't have to make peace with the corruption of your fallen nature. You don't have to just manage it. You can kill it. You can make progress. Don't accept the way that this is just always going to be this way. You can change in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can change in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can change by killing your sin, by putting it to death, by mortifying it. Paul will say more about that, but hear it loud and clear. As a Christian believer, you are called to mortify your sin, not coddle it. Secondly, in addition to the picture of execution, he says dealing with sin is like changing clothes. He transitions in the metaphor there in verse 8. He says in addition, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And that verb there could also be translated as uh, take off or lay aside. We'll come back to that. But where the first list in verse 5 was essentially about peeling away the layers of the human condition, moving inward and revealing the destroying effects of sin upon our souls. The list in verse 8 actually goes the opposite direction as it moves inwardly, outwardly, as it's focused on the destroying effects of sin, as it manifests outwardly in word and deed to bring harm to ourselves and others. 
Look at what he says there in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Here comes another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These things quickly in some detail. Anger, which is that spirit of being opposed in a hostile way to that which God desires for our lives. It's not talking about righteous anger. It's talking about unrighteous anger. Anger that flies off the handle, which is why the next modifier is added. Wrath. It's a distinction from God's righteous wrath. There is unrighteous wrath, right? Thinking about something like a road rage or the anger that flies off the handle toward our spouse and comes unglued. It's like a cauldron of rage that just is exasperated and blows up if you're not in control of yourself. In other words, Paul says it's unrighteous. Wrath, anger, wrath, malice there is a refusal to forgive. When you become an ally to cynicism, when you are malicious toward another, when you have in perfect record-keeping detail all of your reasons to be justified to hate someone and hold unforgiveness in your heart to them, that is what malice is. And also slander, the defamation of someone's character, literally character assassination, wouldn't it be wonderful if the church was free of all of these things? But it's not, is it? Paul is writing this to a church. Paul is writing this to a community of Christian believers. And he says, put it away. You've got to put it away because it's there. That's the point. Slander. And he says, obscene talk from your mouth. It reminds us of what the book of James says in chapter 3, James, where he says that you must learn to tame your tongue because the tongue is a fire and a world of unrighteousness, where he reminds us that it only takes a small spark to light a whole forest on fire. And your tongue is a small member of your body, but it will produce fruits of unrighteousness if you use it in an unseemly way. So the command comes, Paul says, now you must put them all away. Again, lay aside, take it off. He is saying that these behaviors have no place in the Christian life. We are to put them off, but now you must put them all away. Again, this word picture literally is of taking off a garment, laying aside the clothing of unrighteousness. And this is important for us to understand because it doesn't immediately translate in the 21st century to a first century context when Paul is writing this because for us, clothing is primarily about uh, comfort and fashion. It's a necessary utility, but by way of our clothing, we express ourselves comfort, fashion. But in the first century, the primary purpose of clothing was to reveal status and to demonstrate identity. So you could tell a slave from their master by the clothes that they wore. You could distinguish a merchant in the marketplace from a priest in the temple by the clothes that they wore or a Roman official with their clothes. Paul is saying not something superficial like, well, that's out of fashion, so take it off and replace it, but rather he is saying you aren't a slave to your sin. So stop dressing like you're a slave. Stop dressing like your lust is your master. 
Stop dressing like your anger and your unforgiveness is a master to you and you a slave to it. Throw off the tattered rags of your old life that is dead and put on the robes of righteousness in Jesus Christ. It wouldn't make sense to get filthy out working in the yard or out on the farm and have your filthy clothes be piled up there for you to go take a shower and put those same dirty clothes back on. But Paul says that's exactly what you do as a Christian when you live in these sins. Lay them aside. In other words, he is saying, dress like the child of the King that you truly are. You are a son or a daughter of the King. Be who you are. And again, here comes this motivation in uh, laying these things aside. He says uh, in verse uh, 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. See, he associates the practices of the old self with that old nature. That's not who you are anymore. You are not the identity of your sin. You are not your sin. You are who you are in Christ. That is the truth that we must come to terms with. You must put those things off and put on the new self in verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, Paul says, and, and this is, he uses this in several one of his letters, it's one of the most basic, simple principles of Christian living. It's not enough to just stop doing something. Yes, we should put it off, but Paul calls you as a Christian to not only put off the pattern of sin, but to put on a pattern of righteousness. So, if you're someone who struggles with bitterness and malice and unforgiveness, you should put off those things. And you should put on forgiveness. You should put on keeping short accounts with people. If you struggle with anger, you should put off anger and put on love. It's not enough to just stop doing one thing. We must pursue righteousness and put on that which is pleasing in the sight of God. By way of confession and repentance, we put off our old self in recognition that our old self is dead, and we put on the garments of the new self in Christ and live according to our true identity, who we really are. Let me give you the reminder of this good news. Dear friend, you are not defined by your sin. Your sin is not who you are. You are who you are in Christ. And as a result, you should see your remaining corruption as dead to you in Christ. So Paul encourages the church by reminding them in verse 11, here in the church, we are not made up of these diverse identities, identities that distinguish us and seek to provide divisions amongst us. We are who we are in Christ. We are defined by Christ in whom our lives are hidden and into whose image we are being transformed. Paul says Christ is all and in all. Loved ones, if the church is to have growing power in the ministry of the gospel in the community in which we find ourselves, 
then we all individually need to be committed to pursuing this apostolic teaching. Because your sin and my sin corrupts the fellowship of the body of Christ. It brings division and disunity. But when we lay it aside, when we turn from it, when we repent, when we pursue reconciliation and pursue forgiveness, not only with God but with one another, Paul says a beautiful Christian community is being assembled before our very eyes as you are being renewed in the image of your Creator and your neighbors are being renewed and the church is being renewed together in the image of Jesus Christ. This is what Christian community is all about, but it requires you and I as individual Christian believers to be committed both to killing our sin and changing our clothes. Let us do so in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for its truth. We thank You that You give it to us by divine inspiration and also supply that same Holy Spirit to empower us to live in accord with it. So Lord, for every single one of us today, may we be transformed according to this truth. For the glory of Your name we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.